auto industry, buying cars. We have all bought a car, a used car, or a new car. And like every other part of our world, the car retail industry is changing. And today on episode number 270, hmm, 273 of CXO Talk, we are speaking with AutoNation, which is the nation's largest retailer of cars, of automobiles. Before we begin, I want to say a heartfelt thanks to Cohesity, which provides secondary storage because they're underwriting today's episode and they're making it possible for us to be here. I've been working with Cohesity, preparing for this episode, and I have to say, they're just great to work with. So without further ado, I want to introduce Adam Rasner, who is with AutoNation. Adam, how are you? And thank you for being here. Hey, Michael, doing great. Thanks. I'm excited to be here today and uh, talk to you. Tell us about AutoNation and tell us about what you do there. Sure. So AutoNation is the, the country's largest automotive retailer. We're made up of a couple different lines of business. We have about 300 locations made up of new car stores, uh, pre-owned car stores, AutoNation USA, uh, as well as collision centers. Um, we also operate multiple auction houses. And then we've just launched a new line of business called AutoNation Precision Parts. And that's going to compete with the uh, original equipment manufacturer parts. Um, we're in 14 states, again, about 300 locations. Uh, we're about $22 billion in revenue. Um, and uh, the company is growing tremendously. We're about 27,000 associates. You are, what, I think 126 on the Fortune 500 right now. That's correct. And you're an extraordinarily large company. So your view of the car sales is, is very, very, is, I, I suppose, more expansive than just about anybody. Yeah, there are other automotive groups out there, um, but we're, we're by far the largest, um, which, you know, has pluses and it also has its challenges. But yeah, we, we are the largest retailer in the country. Now, tell us about your role. What do you do for AutoNation? Sure. So I'm over the infrastructure and operations team. It's uh, basically made up of uh, systems engineering, so data center operations, uh, network services, um, operations, so change management, incident management, enterprise monitoring. Um, we also uh, have the end-user computing uh, team. So we basically have the whole underlying infrastructure of all the systems that run uh, AutoNation. And you're responsible for these systems for hundreds of locations. I think it's about 350 or so. About Yeah, it's over 300 and about 27,000 associates. Now, Adam, let's begin by talking about the car buying experience and how all of that is changing. And so, so tell us about the car buying experience. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, if you, anybody listening today, when they go out and they bought a car, you know, there's very few people that come back and say, I had a amazing car buying experience. It's, um, it's an industry that hasn't changed much in, in 50, 60 years. You know, it's a four to eight hour ordeal at best, and, and it, it sometimes is painful. And we think that there's a lot of technology that can be uh, added into the process to make it easier, simpler. Um, and, you know, we have a, a day in the future where we see an Amazon-like uh, experience for buying a car. And I think, I think that's coming very, very soon. So we're going to have to talk about that Amazon-like experience. But when you say that car buying is difficult, what, what makes it hard? 
And what are the, the technology elements that must be put into place in order to reach that kind of Amazon experience you were describing? Yeah, so I think today the challenge is even though consumers are way more educated than they were even 20 years ago when they go in to buy a car, they're able to go and search and understand what uh, the pricing should be for the new car or the pre-owned car that they're buying. Um, there's still a lot of you know uh, skepticism by the consumer about the dealerships and the sales process, and it's difficult. Um, and so, you know, we see a day in the future where you can go to a website, you see uh, the car built the way you want all the competitors pricing, you um, apply for your financing online, you add your extras like your wheel protection and your extended warranties and things like that. And there, you know, the dealership, maybe you don't interact with the dealership at all. Maybe the dealership's a fulfillment center and we deliver the car to your front door and you sign electronically. And, you know, it's a very quick experience and you have very little interaction on the sales side. I think that's coming. Um, there are some people that may take advantage of that full experience and have it do the entire transaction online and the car rolls into their house and they sign an iPad and they're done. There may be people that aren't comfortable uh, today going all that way. And so they do some of the transaction or a lot of the transaction online and they still go to the dealership for that last, you know, signing or maybe a test drive before they sign. Um, but uh, so there's, there's baby steps or iterations to get to that full Amazon experience. I'm not sure the consumer is completely ready for the home delivery without dealing with a salesperson at all. But I think the millennials of the world are, are uh, certainly game for, uh, for trying something like that. So we're working towards it. Now, I wanna first off say thank you to the uh, almost 14,000 people who are watching right now. And to remind everybody that we're speaking with Adam Rasner from AutoNation about how the car buying experience is changing. And I want to say thank you to Cohesity for underwriting this episode of CXO Talk. Right now, there is a tweet chat taking place, and you can join in using the hashtag CXO Talk. So, Adam, you've just described this vision of, of an Amazon-like car buying experience. What will it take for the industry to actually get to that point? So there are things that you know are within our control, you know, developing software and systems that can support this kind of all electronic experience. And then there are things that you know are regulatory that that are you know government challenges. In some states, um, they require live ink on every document to buy a car, and, and that's going to really challenge our vision. In other states, you can do some of the documents electronically and some you can sign uh, on, some you have to sign on paper. There's also DMV elements and, and other things um, that are challenging. There's also a lot of third parties in the mix. So um, to be able to sell you extended warranties from third parties or things like that, all that integration has to be built. Um, we're actively working on it and it's coming, um, but it takes time. And again, there are things that are within our ecosystem that we have total control over and there are things that are going to take more time or going to require more effort. And so, um, you know, uh, the vision's there, uh, the path to get there is hard to define in an exact time, but, but we're working towards it. So it sounds like in order to achieve this very transformative vision, you need technology, there are data issues, and there are also process change issues. It sounds like it's, it's all of these things coming together. Yeah, and, and, and one of the challenges is, you know, um, our, our systems that we use today are systems that have been around for a long time. I have to find a way to keep the lights on 
and keep those systems uh, running to conti- continue to duck biz- conduct business today while we innovate. And that, that certainly is uh, a challenge for us. Um, and so we have to figure out how do we, you know, how do we continue with the systems that we have today, as well as innovate and start brand new and, and take the company in a different direction. So that's, that has its challenges. Um, and we're, we're finding our way slowly, but surely, but this has, uh, you know, support of the executive leadership here. And so we're going to keep moving it forward. You know, the car industry, like like so many others, is going is undergoing this dramatic change. And so at your very, very large scale, how do you go about innovating and yet at the same time keep your operations running with, you know, 27,000 people, um, over 300 locations? How do, you, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, well, that's certainly the million dollar question. And, and what the, the strategy we've taken is, you know, we have teams uh, that are kind of focused on the legacy applications that are continuing to support them. They're also still, even the legacy applications need enhancements and um, additional functionality before we're ready to cut over the vision that's a ways away. And so we have teams focused on that. And then we're building new teams for the innovation to support and develop the new applications, new underlying infrastructure. Um, and so that's the approach we've taken just because, again, you're right, our size and scale, it's very hard. We can't just close the door on what we're doing today and go in a totally different direction. It's got to be a, a more of a transitional uh, phase, uh, phased approach. And so that's, that's the way we're handling it. Where, where do the consumer experiences or the, the consumer expectations come into play with all of this? Well, I think, you know, today's consumer um, is, is kind of frustrated in today's car buying process. Uh, I go back to what I started with, you know, it's you, you're hard pressed to find somebody that really says, wow, I had a great car buying experience. They're out there, but they're few and far between. And so I think today's consumer wants uh, a much easier uh, transaction. They want transparency. They want to, uh, they want to, I think a lot of them want to do much more of it online. Um, and, you know, the whole ability to not really be able to negotiate when you're dealing with a web portal that has a set price, you know, uh, it's a cultural thing that, you know, we're going to have to work to change. It's going to have to make the experience of this Amazon-like experience be really seamless. And people are going to have to trust uh, that um, the price that we're giving them is a great price. And that may be showing them our competitors pricing um, so that when they push the button to buy this car, whether it's online or they've done most of it online, and they decide to go to the dealership for the last piece. Um, they have a level of comfort that they got a great deal and they had a great experience. So um, the consumer is demanding something different. Uh, and uh, and so we're, we're trying to deliver that. How do, how do you know? I mean, maybe it seems like kind of an obvious question, but what are the signals from the market that tell you that the consumers are making these have these have these other demands, these additional demands of you, expectations? Yeah, I think I think a lot of it has to do with you know uh, traffic to that we see to our website. Um, the first interaction we usually have with anybody's leads through um, uh, AutoNation.com or through um, uh, sub microsites that we have for all the different OEM dealerships. The first that first uh, contact is almost always online now. And, you know, we hear regularly, you know, how come I can't do my financing end to end? Or, um, you know, how come I still have to sign 30 pieces of of physical paper to do this transaction? Why does it take so long? And so um, those are all great questions. And I think they all can be solved with technology. So how do you, so how do you break it down? Like, do you look at it by process, by step in the life cycle? How do you how do you begin to to break this all down? 
So I think what we've what we try to do is at a high level um, dissect the different pieces that are part of a, a transaction. So you know the trade-in of your old car, the buying of the new car, the uh, financing piece is a big component. The add-on uh, extras that you know you may or may not want to buy in a transaction, and, and how do we make those individual components all electronic? How do we make them smooth? How do we you know how do we make it an easy online experience? And then we build that into one website that you can conduct end to end the transaction. Um, it's a way more, uh, it's oversimplified explanation, but it's a, uh, it's a very complex problem that we're trying to come up with an easy consumer facing solution for, but um, we will get there. So, so you kind of break, so you break it down into processes. And so for you, the processes are, are what you have sales, you have service. How do you, how do you look at the, that journey? Well, I mean, we want to own the entire customer experience. So um, from the minute that they first interact with us and we get that lead from uh, one of the websites, from that, all the conversation that happens in between to then they bought the car, their service experience, which we haven't even talked about, you know, um, today, you know, there's not a lot of technology introduced in the service experience. And, you know, we we're working towards the, the online scheduling, you drop your car off, your, your rental is already pre-set up. You grab the keys kind of like your rental car companies today. You look for your name on the board, you grab the key and go. You come back, we text you when your car is ready. You can pay for that service online. If there's things that come up in the diagnostics that you didn't know about, we can, you can authorize it via text message. Um, you know, uh, and so uh, it's again, not just the initial sale, it's the, it's the, the, the service experience afterwards. And then, you know, when the time comes for you to sell that car again, we want to start all over again with you. So um, it's a whole life cycle of the consumer. And we want to try to, you know, of course, AutoNation wants to own that experience end to end. So that's how, so that's how you break it up. And in fact, you have all of these different uh, businesses, in fact, that are kind of tailored or oriented towards, towards those different points in the, in the life cycle process. Exactly, exactly. And, and the, the precision parts is the newest thing. So we sold you the car, hopefully over your lifespan, we sold you multiple cars at AutoNation, you brought it in for service. And now we can uh, offer you a, a battery at, you know, half the price of the OEM battery. And you, ha you as a consumer have the option to save some money and get a, a, a battery with the same warranty that the uh, OEM uh, offered. Um, it just seems like the natural progression. So um, and we're continuing to look for more opportunities to be part of the, um, the life cycle. From a data standpoint, I'm assuming that you must somehow share data or thinking about the sharing of data across uh, different points in the life cycle to support that consumer experience and obviously uh, personalize the experience to support selling. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's pretty complex. Um, but if you go into an AutoNation Land Rover today and you buy a car from us and then five years uh, from now you go into AutoNation, Mercedes, BMW, whatever it may be, we want to know that you were our customer at this other dealership. Here's who your preferred lender is. Uh, here's how you finance it. So we can try to bring what we learned in that first transaction forward to the new transaction. Um, it, it's We have elements of that today, but we don't have it all. So it's something, again, that we're working on. Um, but uh, there's a lot of data uh, to be uh, to be mined there, and there's there's huge value in it. So yeah, it's 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 very important to us. What is your there's so much there's so many different directions we can take this conversation, but you're responsible for technology infrastructure, and so so we should talk about that. So so tell us about your technology infrastructure. 
Yeah. So we're, we're about probably 85% um, on-prem today and about 15% in, in, in the cloud. Um, you know, my challenge is, again, I've got to provide great infrastructure, reliable infrastructure to the um, existing legacy apps. And then I have to be nimble enough to be able to have scalable infrastructure to uh, be able to be the, the landing, uh, the, the runway or the landing ground for all these new apps that are coming and the new innovation. So, um, you know, we are uh, we're definitely you know building a lot of net new in the cloud uh, because of the scalability and some of the, um, the cost savings. Um, and in the meantime, you know, we continue to support a lot of on-prem infrastructure. You know, and, and the plan is as the legacy stuff kind of get sunset as the new technology comes up, we'll probably be much more of a cloud uh, a cloud infrastructure company and much less on-prem. Uh, today, we've got multiple data centers uh, in uh, several cities. Do, do you have any kind of time frame for making that cloud transition or, or is it just at this point kind of a general objective? Yeah, so anything net new um, that comes in the environment, we always look, hey, could this, is this a great candidate for cloud? And, and there's some economics that you have to look at. There's some technical constraints that you have to think about in cloud. And a lot of things are making sense. So um, when there's opportunity to either refactor an existing app or build net new, um, we always look to cloud first if, it, if the numbers both economically and technically make sense. Um, and uh, so I, I see the scale changing very drastically over the next five years, where today we're 85, 15, 85 percent on-prem and maybe 15 percent cloud to that shifting to be, you know, I don't know if I had to guess, you know, the next five years, it could be 50, 50 or, or even more cloud than on-prem. Um, it really depends on what happens with a lot of the legacy technology. Does the shift from cloud to on-premise uh, demand a lot of retraining and new processes? So are there people issues or is it mostly a technology issue for you? Mostly technology issues. You know, um, uh, most of your audience out there knows when you go to move something from on-prem to cloud, a lot of times it's not just a lift and shift. Things have to be refactored and, and that has cost. Um, and so in our, our challenges, you know, uh, especially since we're kind of going through a lot of technology innovation, do we refactor these old apps to make them, and I've cloudable, quote unquote, where they can be moved to the cloud, or do we leave them as is and focus on the net new stuff for cloud? And so we're making those decisions on an app by app basis um, as it makes sense. One of the things that you and I spoke about uh, during our last conversation is the unique set of, of enterprise of apps inside the car retailing business and it's it's pretty it's pretty different from many other industries so maybe describe that to us if you would sure so um, I think that the, the the cornerstone of the car buying experience is um, the dealer management system which is actually a software as a service and there's only two or three big players out there and so we rely very heavily um, on these third-party providers for the you know sourcing parts uh, uh, the car purchasing experience, we also have written, because we're so large, we also have written a lot of custom integration into these applications. Um, there's also things for the DMV, um, for uh, service. So we, we control our some of our destiny and other parts of it are, are sitting with other third-party uh, software companies. And, you know, that, that has its pros and cons. Um, you know, uh, most of the 
dealership groups out there are much smaller than us. And so they don't have kind of these enterprise wide features that we really strongly desire. So we've taken an out of the box software as a solution and really done a lot of customization, which again, has its pros and cons. It's expensive, it's hard to maintain, it's hard to work through upgrades and things like that. Um, but I think in this new world, you know, we, you know, we really want to control more of our own destiny. So we're seeing what more, what are those features that we can build more into our own platform rather than have uh, sitting with third parties. So in your case, going down the road of custom apps to own your own destiny is is the strategy that that you've pursued. Yeah, and it, and it's it's a big deal because not only is it developing the technology, you know, uh, building the infrastructure. That's probably the easy part, but it's process. Lots of process changes. You know, some of these um, DLR management systems have been around for a very long time, and the sales team and the the service department they're trained on how to use these systems. And and when you start building your own kind of uh, uh, you know when you start building your own software, uh, you know that whole learning curve has to change and we got a 27,000 associates out there that have to be retrained. So it's a major undertaking and it's, it's years, years in the making. Now, I want to talk about uh, the relationship that you have with Cohesity. Uh, and I, and I again want to say that we're very grateful to Cohesity for underwriting CXO talk. We depend on our underwriters to, to do this. So, so to begin, tell us about what you're doing with Cohesity. What are you doing with Cohesity now? Sure. So um, we came to Cohesity um, to, to, to deal with a current challenge we were facing. Um, you know, enterprise backup was a huge pain point for us. We were using a product that was kind of antiquated. It didn't scale well for um, the size organization and the amount of data that we needed to back up. Um, and so uh, we started a search basically first for a new um, enterprise backup solution. And I put the companies that do this work in two buckets, kind of the legacy uh, providers, and then you have the kind of the next gen providers. And what we found is, you know, the, the legacy providers, um, they didn't scale well, uh, expensive, um, and, and they really haven't done a whole lot with the platform in the last 10 plus years. Um, and so, we then turned to the next gen solutions and, and Coecity was brought to us by one of our, uh, our value added resellers as a, as a really good candidate. And um, so we vetted the, the couple of players in that space. We did a great proof of concept with them um, and uh, they beat out the other competitors in what I'm calling the next gen category. And so um, as an added bonus, not only does it, it, it scale infinitely and, and easily, that was a kind of a big, a big win for us. We didn't want to replace appliances every couple of years as they you know, hit their capacity. Um, but we also now were able to use the Cohesity as a, um, as a, as a tier two storage. So um, applications that didn't need our most expensive SSD storage on our very expensive SANS, we were able to use Cohesity as a target. So um, we got this added benefit that we didn't really anticipate up front. It was really going to be an enterprise backup solution, but we're now we're able to pivot and use it for other things. So um, very successful implementation and, and, and very happy customers. So when you make the distinction between a legacy provider and what you call a next-gen provider of technology, I'm interested, is it just the technology alone or are there elements of relationship? Are there elements of mindset and culture? How do you, how do you make the, that distinction? Well, I think, you know, um, the big thing about the next gen providers is their is their hyper converged architecture. It, it just scales infinitely easily. 
Um, uh, and we had, we had used hyperconverged computing um, uh, in other use cases in the business. So we like that model. And that's how we came to uh, kind of key in on Cohesity. Um, so I'd say the technology is the big, is the big differentiator. Um, you know, the, the legacy providers, again, just haven't innovated very much. Um, and, you know, when you hit the capacity of, of that piece of hardware, you're replacing it every three years. And that gets uh, very expensive. You, it, it, you have to do data migrations. And so on the technology front, the next gen thing was just in a different category on its own. As far as relationships, really, you know, you're putting your, your enterprise back up in the hands of, uh, of, of uh, a software company, a software and hardware company. So it's super critical that we made a good decision. You know, when we need to go hit the button to restore, you know, we have to push that button with complete confidence that it's going to be, the data is going to be there. It's going to uh, uh, restore quickly and that, you know, the data is good. And so, um, you know, we took this uh, decision very seriously and, you know, it was through the, the proof of concept uh, process that we gained that confidence. Again, we did a POC with not only Cohesity, but the other players in that space. We also even brought in a couple, one, one or two of the legacy providers uh, just to do our due diligence. And, and at the end of the day, um, we, uh, everything we expected out of the next gen feature wise was there. Um, and then. Coecity just simply beat out um, the the other uh, competitor in that next gen space on performance, on execution, um, and that sort of thing. And what about uh, the dimension of trust? Because this type of product is is completely mission critical. If you ever have a problem with your your systems or your data, and you can't get back to where you were. I mean, the, the results for your business can be catastrophic. And so, so how do you evaluate trust and the, the, those kind of business dimensions that go beyond the technology alone? Sure. So there's kind of the soft things you can do, which is, you know, talk to the gardeners of the world, do the customer references, talk to your peers, um, you know, uh, but then there's, there's actual proof in, in the POC, the proof of concept. And this is where I think, you know, things, this is where the big differentiator is, you know, with the competitor uh, to Coecity that we had tried in the POC, we ran into uh, quite a few technical challenge. In fact, you know, pushing the button to restore the data and, and, uh, the data not being there, that's, that's a big problem. And so even though, you know, that there was a technical issue and we got it resolved, you, you, it killed trust immediately. And so, um, you know, if, if, if things fail during the POC process, you've lost the trust uh, to go forward. And even though things can be fixed, you know, you're always nervous that, you know, it's, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. So that, that's where I think uh, uh, things went really right for Cohesity and didn't go right with the competitor that we brought in. So when you say things fail, you're talking about techno technology failures of, of one type or another. Yeah, you know, things like saying the backup job completed and the data is copied and then we go to restore it and it's not there. That, that's a big problem. That's a core competency of a backup solution. And so when you're doing a POC and you're, you know, these companies are supposed to be putting their best foot forward and you have, you know, an anomaly like that, you know, whether it's their fault or not, the trust, that's, that's back to your question of trust. And so I don't want to worry at night that, you know, if we had selected this other vendor and we pushed the button to do the restore, I don't want to worry and, and, and that the data is not there or the data is corrupted or something like that. So at the end of the day, you have the technology solution and then you have the, the confidence 
that when you need it, that technology solution is actually going to work. Hundred percent, yes. And and you know um, the sales guys, they, they do their job and they do a great job. But it's really about trying the, the solution in your environment, talking to your peers. Um, I think Gartner is a good resource for getting you know some unbiased opinions. Um, but at the end of the day, you know uh, the engineering team here, myself, had a comfort that we were um, picking the right enterprise product. Backup, while it's not sexy and a lot of fun, uh, it's critical. And so um, we took the decision very, very seriously. And we, we spent quite a bit of time doing our due diligence. How do you evaluate this type of, I was going to say complex relationship, because again, I always look at things through the lens of the technology side and the business side. And when you when you have mission-critical technology, there's always technology risk and major business risk. And so how do you how do you evaluate the vendor of this this type of in this type of situation? Yeah, and and again, um, that's a great question because both of these next gen solutions that are out there today and they're you know they're competing very heavily against each other. They're relatively new companies. Um, and you know um, and so that that's a concern, you know, viability, you know, uh, but it was really again through um, we did our own kind of analysis of the company, their financials, are they solid? We want to make sure they're not here today, gone tomorrow. So we do our own kind of vetting before we cut a PO of, of this size to any company, especially, you know, one that's relatively new. And then again, it's back to, you know, do we, you know, do we talk to Garner? Do they validate what we believe is, is the roadmap for this company? Um, you know, uh, I, I, I trust my peers. So I, I do ask for and solicit feedback from my peers. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, that coupled with the POC experience is, is how we come to make decisions. In terms of evaluating the success of this kind of relationship, are there metrics or KPIs or how do you, how do you go about making that evaluation? Yeah. So, you know, there are, um, there are hard metrics. Uh, the solution we were using previously, uh, you know, we were dealing with something like 6,000 backup failures a month um, from, from hardware issues, software problems, basically almost 60, 70% of an FTE, a full-time employee um, babysitting backup jobs uh, to now, you know, we're dealing with a few a month and we actually can go in and, and have a good understanding of what's causing those and remediate. So, um, you know, from a statistics perspective, our backup percentage uh, is much better. Um, again, I mentioned that we moved uh, one of our key uh, document management system, uh, the storage to Coecity. Um, didn't plan on that in the beginning. It just was an added bonus that here is a, an opportunity to, to save some money and move uh, storage off high cost SSDs. Um, and so that was an added bonus. And then there's just a comfort level. Like, you know, we, we had a lot of challenges with the old system. I don't, when I wake up in the morning, if we had to do a restore, I have a level of comfort now that, you know, and I think the engineering team is really on the hook for, for execution when we need to do a restore. Um, I think they have a level of comfort now that they didn't have with the old. So, you know, again, saw there's soft things that you measure and, and feelings that you get. And then there's kind of hard statistics and, and um, we're winning on both ends of that. It's funny because, as you said, backup is not the most uh, sexy technology that's out there or sexy, sexy technology domain, but the technology itself sounds like you love it and it's, it is, it's, it's sexy, geeky stuff. 
Yeah. I mean, um, I, I can tell you, you know, I, our team never really was excited about backup, but we, we finally made the decision. They said, this is going to make our life easier. Um, the interface is easy to use. We were up and running very quickly. And again, you know, uh, they're the ones that get the call at three in the morning that, you know, an upgrade didn't go well and they need to revert back and restore something. Um, and, and those guys have a, a new level of comfort uh, that the data is going to be restored quickly that it's not going to be corrupt. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, we're, we're happy. Well, I just, you know, just in closing this, this segment of our discussion, I just have to say, I'm still floored by the notion of 6,000 backup failures a month. Like, how does that even happen? Yeah. So uh, without naming the vendor, you know, we were on a uh, hardware software uh, platform again, that didn't scale to the size. Um, We're over a petabyte of data, which is pretty significant. All of that data is being backed up. And uh, we had a lot of hardware challenges. Um, it was appliance-based solution uh, with a software overlay. And uh, we had a lot of hardware related uh, failures. And then the challenge was, you know, we would go rerun the job, it would be successful. Um, and then the next time it would fail, we could never really get uh, a good handle on why things were failing. We tried to work with a the vendor. There became a point with the, the, the old vendor. Um, they basically said, you know, uh, we, we don't have a customer of your size using this solution. This is not the solution for you. Um, and, uh, and it's something we had, had in the environment for a long time. And so, uh, it was definitely time to make a change, but yeah, we, we, uh, spent an enormous amount of time and that's high risk. You know, if those jobs aren't rerun. Um, and then not rerun successfully, we're at potential data loss. You know, if there's a failure on primary storage or something like that. Well, it's uh, it's certainly been an education for me about uh, about data storage and data backup. So, in general, what advice do you have for organizations that are looking to replace mission critical systems like you were just? describing what should, what should they do what should organizations making this kind of a change do to ensure that that both of these dimensions the technology dimension and that trust and confidence dimension are satisfied by the vendor sure so i i think really it's all about due diligence and and to spend the time uh, do the poc it, not everybody loves doing it it takes time um, you know, our data centers are not local to our corporate office. We had to have people travel. The vendor had to have people travel. But, you know, when you're going to make, especially on a mission critical app, make the time investment to try it out. It's one thing to sit in a sales presentation in your corporate office um, and have them you know, kind of give you the dog and pony show. And that's great. Um, but the proof is in the pudding. And that is installing it, seeing how it operates in your environment. Um, and then you're know, getting a really good feel for how hard is it to deploy um, what, what's the learning curve for your team going to be, those sorts of things. And then there's the easier stuff, which is, you know, uh, talking to your peers, reading the trade magazines, um, doing customer references. And I usually try to find customer references on my own rather than use the ones that the sales guys give me because, you know, in 20 years of doing this, the sales guys never give me a bad reference for their product. So I try to find people on my own that are using it. Um, and, uh, and, 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 if you do all of that, I think at the end of the road, you're, you should be at a place where you're relatively comfortable to make a big decision. So dive into that a little bit about the, the finding of the, the references. Because I agree. I mean, a salesperson is never, ever going to give you a reference that's a bad reference. 
Yeah, it's it's never happened. And so, you know, while those are great, um, it's really through networking. Um, you know, uh, again, we have a Gartner membership. You can go on there. You can find people that are, are users of the product. You can interact with them electronically. Um, and also just, just from people, you know, in the industry, I've been in the industry a long time. And so I have a pretty good network of people to reach out and say, hey, is anybody using Cohesity? What's your experience? Was it everything the sales guy told you it was going to be? What were your challenges? Um, you know, what are the features that you don't have today that you'd like to see tomorrow? Um, and and that, that's really, you know, outside of the POC, that's really the best information you can get because those are the people that have already lived the path you're about to go on. Yeah. And if you, and I think that's absolutely great advice because if you can find those references through some path other than the vendor, you're, they're going to be honest references. Not that, not that the vendor is going to supply a dishonest reference. I don't mean to say that, but but you're going to get a, a, a clearer, more neutral reference, I think. Absolutely. And, and I've had, you know, I've had references that I found on my own that have gone both ways. And, and sometimes it's in the middle. Sometimes it's like, you know, it's not, uh, this is a horrible solution and it's not, it's not the best solution. It's done pretty well. Here's where my challenges are. Here's what I like about it. Here's what I don't. That's the best feedback you can get. Cause then you go in uh, open eyed or wide eyed to what you're about to get into. So the reference checking becomes uh, really almost advice session as well. So if you buy this product, if you go down this path, try this, don't try don't do that, that kind of thing. Yeah, here are the pitfalls or here's an expectation I had of this product that the product met or didn't meet or here's something that I thought was in there day one, but it's in the roadmap for the future. Um, there's a lot of those kind of, uh, kind of information that you're not gonna get in, you know, from the sales team. It's the real world where the rubber meets the road. And so I really like, to operate that way um, and, and helps me collect a lot of really good information. As we wind down towards the end of this show, and boy, it's been a fast uh, almost 45 minutes, what's next for AutoNation? Where, where are you taking? You're going towards that Amazon-like experience. Uh, what are the steps along the way? What's your, what's your brand, grand vision? Yeah, so I think you know the next the next year or two is to start um, building the the applications and the underlying infrastructure to support that vision. A lot of that's already underway, um, and so um, you know again for the pieces of that experience that we can control in its entirety, I think we have a good roadmap and we're on the path to being able to deliver it. There's again things that I can't control that you know uh, regulatory and otherwise that we're going to work through. Um, but it's coming and I think it's coming faster than people think. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, yeah, be on the lookout. You know, I read that AutoNation uh, is now getting involved with Waymo, the driverless car company. That's correct. I don't know. I don't want to put you on the spot. Can you uh, say anything at all about that? Yeah. So basically, we've signed on to be one of the exclusive uh, servicing companies for these autonomous vehicles. So, you know, autonomous vehicles... Um, in my personal opinion, I think they're a way, we're a ways away from completely driverless cars, but it's coming. And so AutoNation decided strategically, you know, well, if consumers aren't going to buy cars and we're all going to be on a rideshare model or something like that, um, who's going to service these cars? So we wisely, the leadership team um, uh, made strategic partnership with Waymo. And so we're going to be servicing those cars as they go out into the real world. And it's, uh, it's an exciting partnership for us. Yeah, I mean, I found it fascinating uh, because here you are car sellers, but you have all of these other businesses uh, grouped around the different processes like service, and you're kind of hedging your bets because 
even when there are driverless cars, those cars still need to be fixed. Right. And, and, <laughs> and, and if, if the driverless car and the ride sharing thing take off, like, you know, some of the projections show, you know, we won't be selling to consumers anymore. We'll be selling to fleets of driverless car companies. And, and so, you know, we got to make sure we pivot the business to be able to, um, you know, to be able to accommodate that. And then, you know, an easy win for us was, well, who's going to service all these cars? And we have a great footprint um, uh, nationwide to be able to service these cars. So um, that's how that deal kind of came about. And the margins uh, on selling new cars is, is virtually nothing anyways. Yeah. I mean, there's not, not a ton of money to be made anymore in, in, in selling cars. Um, and that's why the company's kind of, you know, gone in different directions with, you know, the Precision Parts line, AutoNation USA, which is uh, our, our used car only or pre-owned car only superstores. We've got a bunch of those. And then, you know, rather than sending off cars that we would normally send, it, send to a third party auction in the volume that we're doing, we said, you know, let's, let's start doing that ourselves. So we operate multiple auctions uh, across the country. Um, and then collision centers have also been a big, uh, a big business for us. Um, we are, I think we're at about around 80 locations right now. So, um, you know, we're going to flex and bend uh, based on the industry. And, and these are the moves that we're making. And so far, they've been pretty good. You know, and as we close out, I just have to ask you about this notion of innovating while maintaining stability in the business, because it seems like basically that's your life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it is the single biggest challenge because, you know, uh, everybody in IT leadership, every one of us are going to say we're resource constrained and, you know, the, the business has more work than, you know, we could ever possibly do. And, you know, and then, and that's just for the keeping the lights on, then you add all this innovation you want to do. So um, it's a challenge. And so our strategy has been again, to dedicate teams to, we've kind of drawn a line in the sand and, and we've said, you know, these teams are going to support legacy applications, the enhancements, because again, this is probably a year or two or more away. So we got to be able to support those legacy applications um, and continue to add new functionality to them. They can't just sit idle for two years while we build the next new thing. And then we've kind of building new teams to work on just the net new. Um, you know, we were, I guess we're fortunate that we're able to kind of structure the team that way and we have enough uh, capital and resources to be able to do that. But that's that's our approach. That's the only way we see our seals being successful. Uh, if we try to co-mingle legacy and the innovation stuff, it, 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 um, it it's... The, the focus usually winds up being on the legacy stuff and we're not able to ever move these things forward. So that's the strategy. All right. And, and as we go out, what advice have you got for other organizations that are facing change in the way that you're facing and undergoing transformation? What advice do you have for going through it, sailing through it seamlessly? Let's put it sure. that way. Um, a lot easier said than done. Um, but what I would tell you is, um, I think one thing is, uh, you know, and I'm looking at it from an infrastructure and operations point of view, you have to have really tight alignment with the business and understanding what they're trying to accomplish, what that's going to mean to you, both staffing wise, hardware wise, operation wise, and being very tightly aligned to the business objectives. And then, you know, and then there's the tough conversations like we were just talking about of, well, you know, uh, how do you want to staff this to be successful? Um, how do you want to um, divide up the work to make sure that 
everything gets done. Um, and that's, that's, it's difficult. Um, and, and usually a lot of times it comes down to, you know, the bottom line and money and, and, uh, and, and properly resourcing. And so, um, it, it's a challenge, but, but I think we've, I think we're on the right path. Um, and I think we're really tightly aligned to what the business wants to do going forward. Well, given, given your enormous size as an organization and how geographically dispersed you are, it's, it's almost amazing that you're able to do any innovation on the ground and still keep those operations flowing flawlessly. So thanks so much for sharing those lessons today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Michael. I really appreciate it. We have been speaking with Adam Rassner from AutoNation. I am Michael Krigsman, and you've been watching episode number 273 of CXO Talk. And again, I want to say a heartfelt thank you to Cohesity for supporting CXO Talk. I've been working with them. They're a great company, and check out Cohesity.com. We will see you again next week. Actually, no, we'll see you again on Friday for, for another show. Thanks, every, thanks so much, everybody. Have a great day. Bye-bye.